I can remember that I had a pain in my chest for basically a year and a half. And I can remember exactly where it was. I was just existing. I was trying to fight through the day to get into bed. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is your host, Al Levin. I'm incredibly uh, very excited tonight. I've got Michael Landsberg on the line. Michael is a longtime TV and radio host. He's a mental health advocate and a founder of Sick Not Weak. Michael, welcome to the show. What the hell's going on, Al? I thought it was Levin. Now, now I'm all messed up. Is <laughs> all it Levine? Messed is up. it Levin? Is it Levine? It's Levin. I, I, it's I don't Levin. Know. But I'm not going to, I usually don't even bother correcting folks, but for the record, it's Levin. On the record right, or off the out. record. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I, I thank you. And uh, I don't know if you even remember this. It was probably about a month ago on Twitter. Some people were asking about give shout outs to mental health advocates that have made a difference. And you gave a personal shout out to me. And I really, really appreciated that. You probably know, but you're well respected in the mental health advocacy world. And uh, getting you know, accolades from a guy like you means a lot. So I wanted to, first of all, publicly thank you so much for that uh, shout out. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I'll say you're welcome, but the truth is I, I didn't do it to be nice. I did it because it was the truth. And if it made you feel good, that's great. But I, I think, you know, the, there's there's so few of us in the world that, uh, and, and I had a big run in. I don't know if you have, but I, I'm sure you've experienced many of the same things. And the reason why I bring this up is is that um, there is an individual, uh, I'm not even going to say his name, not that it would mean anything to you, but but he, he started like a attacking me and started attacking Sick Not Weak. And he was trying to recruit um, people to his website and to his Twitter account. And I said, like, literally, I said, dude, you know, I will recommend that everybody goes to your website and checks it out. And if they feel like they can benefit from it, great. You know, we're, we're not competing in theory. We're working on the same team. You know, it's like not like I'm trying to solve mental illness and the stigma around mental illness all by myself. So uh, I think we need to uh, I think we need to stick together and we need to call each other out when we do something good or, you know, should we ever happen to do something bad? That, too. I love that and really appreciate that attitude. And that is exactly what I've found for the most part in the whole mental health advocacy world is everybody helping one another and supporting one another and not really getting kind of competitive. And actually, I love to give a shout out to Paul Gil Martin from the Mental Illness Happy Hour who helped give me tips before I ever started my show. And once I had done it for a month or two, he uh, was willing to be a guest on the show as well. So I had a lot of support from him. I've had the shout out and support from you and sick not weak retweets my stuff often so yeah thank you thank you so much and i really uh, appreciate that um that whole attitude about it and that's all the time we have today folks uh <laughs> next time is, more ass kissing but for not, right now <laughs> that is not all the time uh all so right. uh 
tell us uh, when, first of all, when did you get into TV and radio? Uh, I got into TV and radio. Uh, I guess the answer is that the day that I realized I was failing out of the University of Toronto. So I followed the pattern that everybody I knew had gone on. My brother before me, as I mentioned, he's, he's a doctor. Uh, he's four years older than me. He was five years ahead in school because he accelerated, not because I failed, just qualify that. Um, but everybody I knew was, uh, my dad was an orthodontist. My brother was, was in med school when I started at university. Uh, everybody was going to become a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant. And that's all I knew that existed. The only thing I ever wanted to do was actually talk about sports on radio and television. But I thought, you know, how am I ever going to do that. And the reason why I ended up committing to it and the reason why I went for it is that I had nothing else. Literally failing out of University of Toronto, I decided, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to go into the radio station at U of T. And I did. And I pressed the button and I can remember the red light came on in the button. And, and I say that because I have a specific memory of it. And I started talking and that changed my life. And it really, it gave me a sense of purpose and belonging, like there was something for me. And I, I, because I had wandered before that and never really had anything to commit myself to, I had all this energy that was built up over years. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I have something I want to do. And I, I became not obsessed with it, but I was, uh, I worked harder than any of the guys that I went to school with. So I, I transferred to another university lying about my previous university because they would never have let me in with my 43 average. So I ended up going to broadcast school. And my biggest advantage was that I was willing to work way harder than others. And I knew that I sucked at the beginning because we all do, right? It's like playing a, a musical instrument. We all sound terrible at the beginning, but they didn't seem to recognize it. I did. So I just worked really, really hard. And I, I got a great career out of it because I was doing something that I loved and something that I felt gave me back a sense of belonging that I never got anyplace else. Wow, that's, a, that's an incredible story, especially as an educator that I am, you know, having any students who like find their passion and their drive. And yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it gave you the drive to work as hard as you could. And man, it paid off because you had a long, you have had a long career in TV and radio. Yeah. I, I, uh, uh, one of the other great benefits that I had, uh, well, a couple, number one, growing up in a house that, uh, I was adored by my parents and, and told continually that I would succeed. And, you know, it was, it was easy for me not to believe that, right. Because, because, uh, you know, school was easy for me in high school. Then I went to university and I found that, you know, my lack of focus on anything was, was not going to hold me in good stead there. But I always, like, I had this belief in myself, which eventually I think led me to have the ability to share my struggles with mental illness without feeling shame. And I think it really stems from the house that I grew up in. But I had something else going for me, and that was no safety net. And as an educator, you know, when, when, you, when you talk to students, very often, especially if they want to go for something unconventional, they'll say, oh, you know, I want to be a sportscaster on TV. My parents, though, they've convinced me that if I, you know, if I don't get a job in two years, that I should go to law school or I should go to teacher's college or whatever it is. And, you know, my reaction to that almost always is, no, no, just go for it now because everybody fails. And if you have an option to fail into, you will always take that. But I had no second choice or third choice. For me, it was like it was it was swim. I mean, sinking wasn't an option. That's awesome. So 
you said when you started broadcasting school, you felt like you were pretty awful at it and they didn't see it. Is that partly, could it be, I, th- I have found that many men who struggle with depression have the propensity of being tough on themselves. And do you think that's part of what that was? Um, and are you well, usually no hard on there's yourself? No, there's no doubt that what, what you just said is, is uh, unfortunately 100% true. That, um, I mean, it, it crosses both sexes or be- both genders. But men have a tougher time saying the words, uh, you know, I, I think I'm suffering from depression. I need to go get help. That is one of the toughest things for a man to say. It's tough for a woman, but not as tough uh, because men have this expectation on themselves. And, you know, it, it's 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 like no one ever wants to admit to being weak. So the key is not to convince people that they should talk about being weak. The key is to convince them that their mental health challenge is not a sign of weakness. And in fact, and I say this, I go around giving speeches all the time. And I say, you know, you guys in the audience, you so many of you think that mental illness is a weakness. Yet here I am standing on this stage and I guarantee you that you, and I don't say this in an arrogant way, but I, I guarantee all of you think I'm the strongest guy in the room. So how is it that you suggest that your mental illness makes you weak, but you look at me talking about mine and you think I'm strong? Right, right. Yeah, that's really well put. So you must have been about 20 or so when you got into your career? I was, uh, well, let's see. Uh, I graduated from uh, my second university. So if you want to add it up, Al, you could. It's uh, six years to get a bachelor degree. Uh, and uh, when I graduated, I guess I was 24. Uh, okay. And I, I got married, um, I think, between graduating, uh, between finishing school and graduation, like, like with mo- no job. And my parents, as you'd expect from Jewish parents, were like freaked out. Oh my God, he's getting married, he doesn't have a job. You know, who gets a job in broadcasting? And, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate that I had a really good job through school. So um, I already had a demo tape that I could put out there. I already, see, what, one of the challenges you have if you're not on the air is that people are worried about giving you your first job. It's like, well, you know, is this guy going to be any good? But if you're already on the air, then it's kind of like you've already broken in and you, you've sort of broken the stigma, uh, if you will, uh, about being a, a, a broadcaster that's never got a job because people wonder, well, how come he's never had a job before? How come no one's ever given him a job? So I got a great job when I was in school, uh, a job that started out just for students, uh, student broadcasters. And uh, it led me to another job and then TSN, which is uh, ESPN Canada, started and uh they hired four hosts and uh i was uh given this gift of being one of these four people and i say gift not that i didn't work hard to get it but i mean i had no no experience i had never been on television before but i convinced them and i remember the conversation i said look you know because i sent in a demo tape that i made up at a local cable station and i remember saying you know i I know you've called me, so obviously you think I've got something, but don't assume because I haven't done it that I can't do it. There's a big leap that you, you're making if you say, well, you know, he, why, why would I hire someone without experience? And my point was, well, you don't know if I can be good because, you know, you, you, no one's ever given me the chance. So it worked out. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It worked out. Long, long career with TSN. You had the show off the record for a long time. 18 years off the record. 18 years. Yeah. You have a, uh, this might be a really tough question for you, a favorite show from off the road or a favorite guest? 
Um, you know, like, so 18 years, 210 shows a year, that's like 4,000 oh shows. Yeah, right. So, uh, and we had four guests on a day and you know, like I'm, I'm so blessed to have had this job yeah. because we decided, um, when we went on the air, politically incorrect had just started. Okay. Do you remember politically? Oh, yeah. Incorrect? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So the idea was that Bill Maher had this show where he put four people on from different walks of life talking about a central issue that none of them were necessarily really well versed at. So when when we created this show, we decided that there would be something really cool about putting people from every aspect of life, not just sports people. It's a sports talk show. But we decided instead of basing it on, you know, who, you know, Baker Mayfield, like how good is he going to be? We tried to base it on the moral, political and social issues of sport, which anybody could talk about. Right. And, you know, everybody's got an opinion on right or wrong. So that allowed us to put, you know, incredibly famous people on who had no idea about sports. I mean, we had uh, I'm, I'm just going to we had Jackie Chan on the show. We had uh, Puff Daddy on the show. We had Pink on the show. We had, you know, like um, Donald Trump was on the show once. Oh, my God. Um, so we had, we had people like from every aspect of life, including obviously athletes of all sports. Right. So I was given this amazing opportunity to meet all these people. We had Spike Lee on the show one day. And I'm giving him the talk beforehand. Okay, this is how the show works. This is what we're looking for. I'm going to throw out the first question. You know, I'd like to know between the four guests, you know, who wants to go first so there's not that awkward silence. And I thought, this is unbelievable. I'm giving Spike Lee instructions, right? And that by the is way, unbelievable. Yeah. And by the way, he hated me. <laughs> he did. He hated me. It was just like, oh, my God, you can't stand me, can you? He wouldn't commit to it. But What makes uh, you think he hated you? Uh, you know, I, I, I could tell. I could tell that he – see, I have this way uh, about me, which is that uh, I can come across as being really cocky. Um, and, I, I'm, I, and I'm good with cockiness, but I, it, it never crosses over into arrogance. You know, I, I couldn't do what I'm doing with depression if I had, you know, any semblance of arrogance. Right. But, you know, I'm also a smartass, and everything that comes out of your mouth, I will challenge. And some people, you know, just don't like that. Right. And I knew that. I was always a, a broadcaster, and I still am, that people either really like or really dislike. And in fact, I think if you would have taken a poll, let's say, um, seven years ago, um, the last couple of years of off the record, if you would have taken a poll in Canada, who on television do you hate the most in sports? I would have won for sure. But also, <laughs> right. if you would have said, you know, who do you really like in sports? I wouldn't have won, but I would have gotten votes. Right, right. That's funny. Uh, so what kind of pressure was that getting a job in your 20s, interviewing people like that, you know, and was that incredibly stressful knowing that you now had to prove yourself? Not at all. You know what? I've never really felt stress from broadcasting. Yeah. Uh, now, the first while that I was at, at in my career, I didn't do off the record right away. I did SportsCenter actually for, um, I guess it would be for about 10 years. I did SportsCenter okay. and, then, uh, and then off the record. But, you know, it was like life. Life was never complicated in broadcasting for me, like right. on the air, it was like, and, and this leads to mental health too. And, and that is that I, I learned never to care what people thought of me, like literally as long as they watch or as long as they listen, or as long as they read what I wrote, I don't care if they like me. I'm not there to make friends. That's so uh, important. You know, I've learned yeah. even as an administrator too. I mean, in the beginning it was like, I want to be liked. I have to be liked. It's like, no, I have to do right for kids. And some people aren't going to like the decisions I make. As long as I know I'm doing what's right for the kids, 
and supporting staff, then I'm okay with it. And some people aren't going to like my decisions and may not like me. And I finally learned to be okay with that. Yeah, there's something pretty liberating about that. But, you know, there, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was at uh, a hockey game, uh, the Maple Leafs, and I was standing between periods in line to get popcorn. And a guy beside me is sort of looking at me. And when you work in television, people do that, right? <laughs> so I looked back at him and said, hey, how you doing? Because I talked to everybody. Uh, and he said, uh, I'm okay. I said, uh, what's going on? He goes, you know, uh, I, I don't like you. I go, uh, okay, let's talk about that. He said, well, I, you know, I know you from your show. I don't like you. I go, okay, are you, are you saying that to be a dick around your friends or do you genuinely not like me? And he said, I genuinely don't like you. I said, then I respect that. He goes, well, what do you mean? I go, and you're right. He goes, what do you mean? I'm right. And I said, well, there's no such thing as a wrong opinion. How could I say to you, no, you do like me or no, you should like me. That's how you feel. And in your world, that's reality. Someone else could say, hey, I think you're the best guy on television and they would be right, too. It's just opinion. So he goes, so you're not mad. And I said, not only am I not mad, but I'm really impressed that you had the guts to say it. And I swear (laughs) to God, Al, he says the next words out of his mouth. He goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I was being a dick. It was like he was so beaten. That he was so beaten. Funny. There's such a life lesson there, which is, you know, uh, so many people in so many aspects of your life want to troll you, right? Oh, yeah. And it's like I say on, on Twitter all the time, I'm untrollable. You can say anything you want to me, and I, and I won't lose perspective on the relative unimportance of what you're saying or the conversation. Right. Yeah. So you, uh, you start your career in your 20s. You don't have your first bout of any kind of challenges with mental health until early 40s. Is that right? Yeah, that, that would be. Uh, well, that would I, I, it was certainly my first bout with depression. Um, well, it was our first year of off the record. So I, I think I was 40 years old and uh, I had suffered from anxiety as a child, um, like really sort of deep um, um all-encompassing, you know, just, I, I, there were so many things that scared me that I knew didn't scare other people. Uh, but, but, you know, it was like, I had no idea that general anxiety disorder even existed, right? I would never, I never thought to tell my parents, even though they would have been, you know, they, they would have hugged me, right? Right, right. Um, so I, I, I kind of went through my life, you know, avoiding the things that really scared me uh, and, 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 you know, trying to best make my way through doing stuff that did. And then, you know, I get into broadcasting and this kind of this gives me all kinds of opportunity to open up. I mean, I was a shy kid in high school. You know, I was uh, there was a lot of things, like I said, that I was scared of. Can you give some examples of your anxiety and what you might have been scared of? For sure. Well, one of the things like at, at the heart of it when I was younger, the worst thing was my fear of throwing up or being around people who throw up. And and to this day, if you and I were saying, hey, you know what, Michael, let's go on a road trip. Let's go give a speech together in wherever. And we got on a plane together and you're sitting beside me and we're going along just great. We hit turbulence and I look over and you're starting to sweat. You And, and, I, and I'm watching your hand because I'm still like to this day, I'm thinking, oh, my God, if he reaches for the bag. I'm out of here. Like I'm literally <laughs> going to sprint out of this seat and I don't care if the flight attendant is screaming at me. Knock me over on the way. You don't care. <laughs> I, I don't care because I, that scares me so much. And why does it scare me? I have no idea. And, and I think, you know, that's truly what anxiety is. It's like, what is anxiety? And to me, anxiety, the illness is, um, is a few things. Number one, it's this feeling in your body. I kind of say like, like an electrical current is going through your body. Like, like, um, 
my my knee right now is bouncing up and down, not because I'm stressed, but because I'm I'm kind of uh, alerting myself to how this feels. Right. And one of the things that I do is my my legs shake when I get really anxious. But when it comes to fears, you know, fearing logical stuff, like if you said, oh, man, I'm so afraid to go uh, scuba diving off the coast of South Africa where they have great white sharks. No one's going to say, well, that's you know, I can't believe you're afraid of that. We're all afraid of that. But but when you can't explain why you're afraid of something, that to me is, you know, it starts to move into the area of anxiety and true anxiety to me is when you can't explain what you're anxious about. You just know you're anxious. And that was me for a a lot of my life. Did that play out in school as well? Yes. Uh Without a doubt. You know, I, I I just you know, I. I just remember sitting there and I don't think I've ever even discussed this, but I remember being in class and the teacher was, was really good. And he said to me after class, he said, Michael, can you stay? And I said, sure. I said, what's up? And he said, are you okay? And I said, why, you know, why do you ask me that? Mr. Fraser was his name. And I, and he said, well, cause you, you seem like you've changed, you know, at the beginning of the year you were, you know, you seem like you had a bounce in your step and now you, you don't seem like you're okay. Are you okay? And uh, like literally I've never spoken about that. Uh, never mentioned his name since. And that just to me is a reminder that I, I did change, that I, I was ruled by my illness in many ways. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I learned from a young age how to, how to fake it, right? How to wear the mask. Yeah, that's that awesome I, that he would stop and ask you that and point that out and check in with you. And I'm a little surprised you didn't say, hey, Mr. Frazier, I'm just sick, not weak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it would, it, here's the thing, though, is I didn't know I was sick. Right. It, it's, and and this, this happens to me all the time in speeches when I talk about what depression or anxiety really feel like. And I talk about how, you know, most of the time when you get hit by depression, it doesn't happen like bang, like someone hits you with a baseball bat. It's just this tiny, tiny change in you that is so tiny you can't notice that it's happening. And uh, because of that, you can go months without actually thinking, you know, am I okay? And for me, it was, you know, back um, when I was 40, it was this realization one day that I thought, wow, you know, something wrong with me. And I remember someone had asked me to do something, go out for dinner or um, do something that I typically would have enjoyed. And I remember saying no. And then I started to think back and I thought, wow, you know, I've been turning down those kinds of opportunities. I've been like, like instead of Instead of being the normal me, I have retreated and I have, instead of looking for places to be social, I have looked for places to hide. And it was this, this terrible realization that, that I thought, wow, I'm gone. Who I am is gone or who I was is gone. Who I am right now, I don't want to be that person. I don't like that person. And that's really one of the challenging things about depression is that it happens so gradually people don't know they're sick. And so often when I go to give a speech, someone will say, come up to me afterwards and go, you know what? I, I think you were talking to me. I think, you know, I, I haven't really thought about it, but now I'm thinking about it. And, you know, I'm thinking that I kind of gave up on my life. I gave up on myself. I'm just fighting to get through the day. Right. Did you, so a couple things before we get into the depression, did your anxiety ever get high enough to throw you into what you would call a panic attack? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, it did. And um, could you describe that? You know, I, 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 I remember for the last time I was not on medication, um, I went a year and a half 
And it was just a really, it was a really tough time in my life because there was anxieties over somebody I loved in their health. And it just, it just, it consumed me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't think about anything else. And I had been off medication for a couple of years. And, you know, my wife, you know, kept telling me, you know, like, you're, you're not doing well, you know, like, you, you know, you of all people, you know, you've been through this before. And this was before I started my sort of public advocacy for sharing. I, I deceived myself. And I can remember that I had a pain in my chest for basically a year and a half. And I can remember exactly where it was. And since that time, the pain has gone away, but at times it does return. And I can remember, you know, sweating and my heart racing. And I can, I can remember um, learning though, over the course of that year and a half, I, I learned to talk myself down from it. I learned to be able to say, okay, I know I'm not dying. I don't need to go to the emergency room. I don't, you know, I, there, there's nothing wrong with me other than the fact that I have this mental illness. And there's, there's, uh, I mean, that's something that you can coach into people, right? Is, is the using the healthy part of your brain to rationalize what's going on with the bad, the sick part of your brain. So yeah, I, I went through that and still do from time to time, but nothing like I did um, for that year and a half or two years when I was off meds. And that was while you were an adult, right? That was like... two thousand and that was two thousand and eight. Okay, how about as a kid when you were first? You know, you talked about your fears and the anxieties. Did you have panic attacks in school or or at that school age time? You know, I I, I at the time I had no idea what they were. Right. But right. I can you know I I can remember. I would have these illnesses and I genuinely thought that there was, you know, something wrong with me. Uh, and I, I, I remember once I had to call my mom, this was in junior high, so middle school. And I, I, you know, I had to call her to come and get me. And I, I, I mean, because I can remember this, it tells you sort of how profound it was for me. And again, I've not talked about this, you know, ever, but I remember calling her and thinking like, what's wrong with me? You know, like there's, there's, I'm, I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not right, but I'm not sick. But I didn't say that to my mom. I just said, oh, you know, my, my stomach is upset or I have a headache or whatever it was. But I remember thinking, no, I, I don't have a headache. I don't have an upset stomach. I, I, I don't know what I have, but I know it's not what I claim it is. Right. And as a kid, nobody, I mean, like you said, you didn't share, you didn't really know no, what was going on no, never, and never told it, never told anyone because I, I didn't know that there was something to share. Right. You know, I, I, I didn't know anything about anxiety, the illness yeah. and, um, you know, and, and, and one of the things that that allows me to do is, you know, as I'm sure is the case with you, that you use your own experiences as your expertise, right? Absolutely. So it's not like I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not, you know, I'm not a pharmacist. I, I have, I have a degree in broadcasting, but I do have a PhD in being a patient right. and that allows me entry into people's brains because they know 100% that I understand them. Yeah. Like no one, you know, like people I'm sure have come to hear me speak and they've gone, ah, that guy's a jerk or, you know, what a smart ass or whatever. But no one, I don't believe, has ever thought he doesn't get it. I don't think anyone, not one person out of like thousands has ever said, I don't think he's genuine. I think he's, you know, he just wants us to feel that way. People know that I get it because the description of what depression feels like to me has to be genuine. No one could make this shit up. Yeah, Absolutely. 
So bring us back to around age 40. You said you noticed um, becoming a lot more antisocial, making excuses, which is a big symptom, right? We know that. And and it, it's awful for your mental health, right? The more you uh, seclude yourself and avoid people, it's not helpful, yet it's so difficult to go out and reach out. Did you have other symptoms at the time? Um. I think all of my symptoms were, were depression related. Uh, I just didn't know, I, you know, I couldn't define them. But when I came on that day to the conclusion that I was really sick, I knew what it was. Like there, there was no mystery for me. There was no, you know, I'm going to go to a doc and, you know, they're going to work me up and I'm going to find out what, you know, what my illness is if I have one. Like I knew. I got severe depression. And I remember going into my psychiatrist's office who I actually cold called her and she said, you can't do this. You can't just call up a psychiatrist. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, we're on the phone now. And I guess I made a compelling enough case that she saw me. And when I walked in, I said to her, look, you know, like all whatever you tell me I need to do, I'm going to do. But I need something right now because, um, you know, like I'm really, really struggling. And on that on that first appointment, she gave me a, a prescription for Prozac. And I went down to the uh, pharmacy in the lobby, filled the prescription, bought a bottle of water, took the pill right there. Wow. I was I was like, I, you know, and it, I, I talk to people all the time about medication, about how to look at it, how to be skeptical about it, how, why you should fear it, but why you should leave it as an option on the table. And I just remember taking this pill. And as I was putting it in my mouth, I remember thinking this pill is hope. You know, I've been sick now for a while and I, I like I'm absolutely beyond miserable. But as I'm putting this pill in my mouth for the first time in probably six months, I felt hope. Yeah. And that's what guys like you and I try to convey to other people, because, you know, when you're hopeless, bad things happen. Oh, that is a bad, bad place to be when you're hopeless. But so I want to push you a little harder on the symptoms, because so far, you know, you've described it as you were really miserable. And the only real symptom you've been able to share with us was that you became antisocial, you know, avoided friends and stuff. What else was going in, on in your life that made you cold call a psychiatrist? Because there are times where people are feeling like crap, they're avoiding friends, and they aren't thinking, I got to call a psychiatrist. So what I, I think, else was going on? You know, I think a lot of that was my makeup, too, is, is just that, you know, I, I, I don't have a great deal of patience in some areas. And, and this has been the case with myself, but also anybody that, that I care about. It's like, okay, well, we got to address this right away. We got to get you in to see a doctor right away. And that has played out in my life in a variety of different ways. But with me, it was like, I mean, Al, like, like I was, I was dying. Like I, 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 you know, I, I kind of refer to it as the walking dead. You know, I was not dead, obviously, but I was also not alive. I was not living. I was just existing. I was trying to fight through the day to get into bed. Mm. And then when the, uh, when the morning would come, I realized, okay, the only thing I'm trying to battle to do is get through the day and get back in bed. And that is obviously no way to live. And yeah. I think, you know, my own self-preservation forced me to, to take, you know, as, as, um, immediate action as I could. Right. Were you able to sleep at that point? Uh, that was a problem. I think, I mean, we're now you're, t you're talking about 
20 years ago now. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, this, the symptoms that I had then have repeated themselves four or five times, uh, because, uh, I went off medication, then relapsed, went back on medication, then relapsed, went back off medication or went back on. And, and you may be saying to yourself, rightfully, the man's an idiot. And I would agree like who does that and relapses four times. The fifth time was 2008. And I swore that I would never, ever go without treatment. Like I, I would love to get off the meds that I'm on now if there was a better option, but medical science hasn't really given us any options since Prozac. So I, I learned my lesson after four times, but I have gone through this before. So when you ask me about the symptoms that I experienced back then, they're the same symptoms that I experienced, you know, from time to time, uh, four or five times a month now, but they're just not nearly as, not nearly as profound as they were because I'm on medication. And, and, and just so you know, cause I've mentioned medication five times, I'm not an advocate for meds. I'm an advocate and I tell this to people all the time. You know, if you're sick enough, you have to make a vow. It's like you got to take an oath, you know, raise your right hand, place your hand on the Bible to your choice and repeat after me. Okay, I will. I will do anything, do anything to treat my mental illness, to treat my mental illness. And that means medication or that means that means therapy, that means CBT, that means if need be ECT, that means uh, you know magnetic stimulation, that means deep, deep brain stimulation. If you're sick enough, you can't take stuff off the table. It's like saying, okay, well, I have cancer that maybe could be cured, but I'm not going for this treatment or that treatment, and I'm sure it's not hell not having surgery. You gotta leave it all on the table. And for me, medication, uh, while it's far from perfect, gave me my life back. Right. I feel exactly the same way. And one of the big things I always mention when discussing medication is just that my hope is that people aren't judging one another. You know, if you're anti-meds, that's fine, you know, but but don't tell somebody else that them taking meds is wrong. Um, and if you choose to take meds and somebody chooses to try every avenue other than meds and they're very anti-med, I mean, that's up to them. But let's not judge each other because it is a difficult decision. And I think the fact that you got on and off and on and off kind of speaks to that challenge because a lot of times we're on meds and we want to get off. In my case, I so my depression is quite different than yours. And I think it just speaks to the, the variations of depressions that exist. Um, I had my first, probably about the same age as yours, uh, around 42, I had my first major bout of depression. And then three years later had another major bout of depression where I was suicidal and, and had to stop work for five weeks and checked myself into a partial hospitalization program. But my psychiatrist has said, and, and I would be willing to look at second uh, opinions and such, but I've done a fair amount of reading on it. After two major bouts of depression, they really recommend that you stay on meds for the rest of your life. So I'm not in a rush to get off of them. If they are one of the things that's helping me right now stay out of that deep, dark hole, I'm not going to give up any of my supports because I never want to get to that point again. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm motivated with this exactly the same way, which is, you know, I will do anything to avoid going back to where I have been. 
And, you know, the thing about meds and, and you know, I'm, I'm totally prepared for this discussion. One thing I disagree with, um, with what you said, I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with it, but if you extend what you were saying to, Hey, you know, if you, if you don't believe in medication, that's cool. Well, it's, it's, it's not cool. Now I agree with what you said, you tied it to don't, you know, don't judge other people. Of course I agree with that. But, you know, I tell people, look, you know, like, are you going to, are you going to suffer with this the rest of your life? because um, other things, you know, if something else works, great, try something else. But you only a fool says, I am incredibly miserable. I am in so much pain. And there's a possibility that that pill that I could take is going to help me, but I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to do it because, well, I'm not even sure why I'm not going to do it. And that, that, you know, like, like I spent a lot of my time trying to convince people to, to do anything. And again, it's not about medication. It's about leaving everything on the table. Yeah. And sometimes I'll say to people, you know what, if, if you're not willing to say, I will do anything, then maybe you're not as sick as I was. You know, if you can see living the rest of your life with this illness um, and go, yeah, you know what, I could do that. Then you're not, then you're not a candidate for meds. But if, if you're sick enough, there has to be a point where you say, I'll do anything to get yeah. better. Meds yeah. suck. The only thing worse than meds are the illness. Is yeah. the illness absolutely? And and I agree. I am glad you pushed back on me on that. Uh, I was not under the impression that you wouldn't push back on something you didn't agree with. But uh, you know, I I do. I think you're right. I would I would think they were being a bit foolish to be to put it nicely. Um, if they were like, no, I'm just not going to do meds, like. Explore them, look into them, do the research. And yeah, I mean, where I was at that point, uh, the doctor pretty much could have held out a handful of dog poop. And if he told me it was going to help me, I, I mean, everything was on the table. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I felt exactly the same way and I still feel the same way that if, you know, we were talking about, cause I, I, I try to talk to people, um, you know, who are in a position like you were in back in the day when you were 42 and the position that I've been in, you know, four or five times. And that is, you know, that this desperation for something that's going to make you better. And I can say in with a hundred percent confidence that if when I went last went on back on medication, if the meds had not worked, I would have tried other meds for sure. And if they had not worked and my doctor said, you know, I think you're a candidate for electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. Uh, and I, I say, OK, well, you know, like, what are the side effects of that? And they say, well, you know, you can have memory loss. It can be a big problem. I would have been in line waiting for it. I would have said, if I stick my finger in this outlet, will I be able to shock myself out of this depression? Because I, I would have done anything to get better because everything was better than where I was. That's how much pain I was in. Yeah, absolutely. So your depression still comes and goes? Yes. And yeah. you um, said a few times a, a month? Yeah, I do a video blog every day. We call it the Daily Lands blog, which yep. I think is pretty damn clever. It's very uh, and cool. And I can boast about the name because I didn't think of it. <laughs> uh, but my, like we have uh, we have done over the last one. I'm just making this this number up. It's around one thousand two hundred out of one thousand two hundred days. 
consecutively, we have done 1,190 lands blocks. Wow. So I do it every day, and every day when the month starts, so on 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 September the 1st, God, is it September? That's really depressing. <laughs> but not depression that we're talking about the illness, depressing, which is a bad way to phrase things because they, they do get mixed. But on September the 1st, I will wipe my arm clean. And when I have a bad day, I put a mark on my arm. And typically I, I do that because I do this video every day and I want people to look at my arm and be able to say, well, first of all, he's he's one of us. He still understands this illness. He's not selling false hope, which is, oh, my gosh, I went on meds and I'm cured. Well, I'm not cured. And the other thing is because I have four or five or six or three at the end of the month, the fact that my arm is not covered in these marks, Al, that's somebody else's hope because that's a success. I mean, four marks on my arm in a month, given I was a guy who had, you know, like 30 marks, 31 marks. Uh, I, I mean, I used to cherish February because I could only have 28 marks on my arm, which I, I didn't do back then. But the, you know, the, the lesson when you look at my arm is that, you know, there is hope. And um, so, yeah, I do have uh, I do have days when I struggle, but nothing like I struggled back uh, before I, I went back on on treatment. Right. So if you do you typically feel a bad day, like first thing in the morning, oh, crap, this is going to be one of those days or does it um, sneak up on you throughout the day? Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, part of my problem is that. Um, sleep deprivation. Um, in my current career, I, I'm a morning radio show host. So uh, I wake up at 4.30 and uh, typically the first hour, I'm on the air at six. Uh, and the first hour for sure, I have a lot of negative thoughts. You know, uh, I, you know I tweeted about it actually today. Uh, I can read that tweet out because I, I, I try to, I, I, you know, when I, when I have a bad experience with something, I try to put it into words because you know, guaranteed 100%, there's other people that have felt exactly the same way and they feel empowered to read your words and be able to go, yeah, you know what? Me too. Right. So when I wake up in the morning, well, this is what I, I tweeted out. I'll, I'll tweet it out again. Uh, this is the tweet. My view of me, 4.30 a.m. I look tired. 5 a.m. I'm useless. 6.01 a.m. on the air. Everybody knows that I suck. 7.13 a.m. I'm actually pretty good. 11 a.m. I was wrong. I suck. Noon. Oh, I have a speech tomorrow. I'm going to be terrible. Nap. 3 p.m. Excuse my language, but fuck the voice, fuck the thoughts, fuck the illness. I'm awesome. That's that's how my my, my day went. And, and you can see that, you know, this wild swing of confidence and belief in myself, which you asked me about depression and what symptoms I felt. I can tell you, you know, four of them. Uh, and I guarantee that you felt all four of these. This is how sure I am, Al. That if you say, no, I didn't experience that, I will, I will fly down to Minneapolis, St. Paul. You will come and pick me up at the airport and we will go out for dinner to the best restaurant of your choice. That's wow. how, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, don't, don't lie to me. Al. I was just going to say, I don't have a lie detector on me or anything here. Cause that's tempting. No, you, do. you know, what the lie detector is yeah. me. Okay. I'll know if you're lying. Okay. Symptom number one, um, loss of the ability to experience joy. Felt it. No matter what happens, you just you can't you can't feel good about anything. That's severe depression when you lose the ability. Not that bad things happen to you or that there's the absence of good things. You just can't feel it, right? Yeah, and in fact, I couldn't even feel sadness at times. It was more like a numbness. 
Yeah. And, and sadness for sure is mistaken for depression. Yep. Some people with depression are sad and some people who are sad are depressed, right. but one does not equal the other. So exactly. that's symptom number one. Symptom number two, loss of self-esteem. We all feel, Bingo. we all feel. We all feel this, oh gosh, I'm like, I'm so useless. Like, why did I think I was good at this? And, you know, I was hosting a TV show, um, you know, a, a national TV show every day with these famous people on and everybody thought they, they would tell me I was arrogant. And it was like, no, it, like I, I didn't tell them this, but, you know, it was the opposite of that. You know, I, I, I thought I was just terrible and, and useless. So that's symptom number two. Uh, number three is this sense of loneliness, this sense of, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm the only one that really understands this. You know, yeah. other people look around me. Everybody seems to be happy. They got a bounce in their step. No, nobody could possibly understand what I'm feeling. Like I'm all alone. Symptom number and three, check. Yep. Yeah. And number four is the sense of hopelessness, this feeling of, God, I'm never getting better. You know, yeah. like I, I know that people go to doctors, but I'm just, I'm destined to live this way the rest of my life. Yeah. And I really think that that is, that's a dangerous place to get. Right. When you lose all sense of hope, that is a dangerous place to be. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, you should acknowledge at this point, Al, that, you know what, Michael? Yeah, you gave me these four symptoms and I've experienced all of them. So, yeah, you know what? You do understand it. Let me hear you say that, Al. Uh, hey, Michael, I have experienced every one of those four symptoms you have mentioned. And I think you know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> and, and, I, I and I still would love, a, uh, you know, to meet you at the airport and have you take me out to a restaurant of my choice. Uh, I'm sure you would. <laughs> um, I just didn't convince uh, you this time. It's universal. We all experience the same things. Yeah. And I remember speaking in Edmonton. Uh, I, have you ever been to Canada? I have. Uh, Winnipeg. Okay. I have spoken in Winnipeg probably in the last two years, 10 times. No. That's an exaggeration. Six or seven times. Okay. Um, there's a handful of places that I seem to go more often than other places, and Winnipeg is one of them. Um, but I was giving a speech in Edmonton, and I remember there was a whole bunch of people that followed Sick Not Week that came to hear the speech. And we were all talking in advance, and then I went up and I, you know, it's not really a speech, more like a talk or, you know, a conversation with people about the most intimate things in their lives and, you know, sometimes the most private things. Uh, and the more I expose of my private things, that sounds kind of creepy, but it, it's actually accurate when it comes to my experiences with depression, the more value I have to other people. And after this was over, someone, a woman came up to me and she was just sobbing. She was just so, and I could tell it wasn't tears of sadness. I could tell it was like just pure emotion, you know, maybe some sadness. Um, but more than anything, it, it seemed like she had well, she said it to me. I, I said, well, you know, like, what are you feeling? And she paused because she was really having trouble composing herself. And she said, I feel understood. And I said, okay, tell me about that. She goes, you don't know how it feels to feel for the first time, like, oh my gosh, someone understands me. Oh my gosh, someone has been affected the same way. She said, you know, I, I heard you speaking about, you know, these four things that, that you say you experience with depression. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, that's me. He's, he's, he's like, he's in my head. And I thought, wow, that's the value. Not, not just for me. I mean, like you do it too. And, and you know, anyone who chooses to share 
and and can really sort of dig down and 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 explain what it is they're feeling could do the same thing. It's not like I I have this unique message, uh, but it, it resonated with her in a way because she knew it was genuine. And when you started this interview, one of the things I said to you was that of all the thousands of people that I've spoken to, I don't think anyone has ever thought now. Nah. Nah, that guy, he's faking it or, you know, he's read a book and, you know, he just wants to, you know, he, he, he likes the fame of being in front of an audience. Um, so it is uh, it is genuine and we all feel the same things. And when you learn that, when you learn that, oh, my God, Al Levin feels the same things I feel. That is so empowering for other people to know, you know, Al feels the same way as me. That's like your gift to them is to say, yeah, you know, I've experienced this and they go, me too. Yeah. I I think sharing one's stories when people are able to is so powerful. Um, And I think it allows others to eventually share their stories and maybe reach out for help. I mean, I gave a talk to a bunch of administrators one time and a year later, somebody reached out to me and told me how it impacted them and what they were doing about their story. And two years later, um, another administrator reached out to me and said, hey, this is because of the impact you had on me sharing your story. And this is what I'm doing now to share mine. So I think there's nothing better than sharing stories. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast. So tell us when you are having one of those tough days, cause you have four or five a month, what do you do to try to pull yourself out of it? Uh, well, I, I think the answer is the acknowledgement Two two acknowledgements. Number one, that I can't make it go away, but number two, that I know it will go away. So it's like, I know that I'm having a bad day and I know that no matter how hard I try, I can't, I can't get beyond it. It's not going to disappear. But I also know that tomorrow I will feel better. And that's the difference between medicated me or treated me and untreated me. Because the hopelessness comes when you know 100% that tomorrow you will feel just as bad as you feel today. So at this point, when I have a bad day, it's just like, ride it out. My daughter's heard me say this a million times. She shoots the, the lens blog every day. You know, it's, it's like I let the depression be on me, but not in me. I don't, I don't embrace it. I don't, I don't roll around in the mud with it. It's just like, okay, it's there, right? I can't make it go away, but I'm not, I'm, I'm going to do my best to pay as little attention to it as possible. And I'm going to try not to catastrophize everything where you go, oh my gosh, I'm having a bad day today. What happens if I'm having a bad day tomorrow? That means that, you know, maybe I'm relapsing. Maybe the medication isn't working. And before you know it, you have talked yourself into a deeper depression because of your fear of the depression. Right. What about uh, how have you been able to overcome, because this was challenging for me through my depression, those negative feelings of beating yourself up when, you know, you go to the studio and you're telling yourself like, God, I I suck at this. I don't know what people are thinking or why they're listening to me like that for me was easy to create a downward spiral that I just couldn't get out of. I mean, I found more and more reasons to believe I shouldn't be an administrator. Why am I doing this work? This person's been teaching more longer than me. What am, you know, and everything I took blame for and I just beat the hell out of myself. And so how do you stop that once it starts? Well, I, I think that experience allows you 
to to be able to deal with it. Like at the beginning, I could, you know, I, I just, I mean, the reason why I, I was able to get through the day was because I had to get through the day, right? You know, it was, was like, okay, well, I have, I have no choice. I have this great career. I have this show that has my name on it. And, you know, I, I can't just, I, like, I just felt like there was no other option for me. And I also felt like staying home wasn't gonna do me any good anyway, because I was just, you know, I was miserable wherever I was. But it was kind of like, how do you get through it? You, 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 you do it because you have to do it. And you do it, especially at the beginning, uh, because you know you could fake it, right? And even though I did you know, 500 TV shows, really severely depressed. And if you asked me, what did you think of you? I would say I was terrible. But I never heard from people afterwards saying, well, you know, that show wasn't your best. And, you know, I and, you know, I fully expected sometimes people to go, oh, my gosh, are, are, you, know, like, are you OK? You don't sound like yourself. Uh, but in my head, I wasn't myself in my head, like the bar is in a certain position and I was way underneath this bar. But as you as you go on with this and especially now, given my depression is is uh, moderate at best or at worst, it's moderate. So I, I kind of we have this thing called the Sichter scale. So a zero is what I was in 2008 and a 10 is not euphoria, but the ability to feel euphoric if something euphoric should happen to you or or the ability at, at a 10 is, you know, to feel to feel really sad if it's appropriate to feel sad. It's like you can feel whatever your life is dictating to you. But I live my life now between a four and a seven because I'm on medication. It takes away the bottom. So I, I, I you know, that's why I'm on the meds, right, to to take away the possibility that I would return to the zero or the one or two or three. But also I give up the eight, nine, ten. You know, I, I can't feel the same kind of, um, you know, wild emotions that, you know, are sometimes the best part about being a human being. But I'm willing to make that deal. And that's why I said to you before that, you know, medication sucks but not nearly as badly as the illness sucks. And if you're sick enough, you're willing to, to give up something to the medication, right? So I make this deal with the meds. It's like I'm holding the bottle. Okay, medication, you take away the zero, one, two, three, and I'll give you the eight, nine, 10. So when you ask me how, how I make it through, you know, the days when I'm not doing well, it's, you know, relatively easy because my worst day is now a four and I can handle the four in my sleep, so to speak. And I also know that they will pass. Do you ever talk to your psychiatrist about the fact that you hold up a pill bottle and try to make deals with it? Um, <laughs> no, because I don't see a psychiatrist anymore. Okay. Uh, but I, I mean, just because I, I, I haven't had to go, um, my family doctor now fills my prescriptions and I haven't gone for, you know, talk therapy for years right. and years. Uh, but yeah, I, w I would gladly say I speak to my pill bottle. You know, I, I feel it's very Shakespearean. You know, I'm, I'm talking to this pill bottle as if it's a person. You know, to be or not to be. I love to it. To be a zero one two three or not be a zero one two three. That is the question. <laughs> so tell us about sick, not weak. I know you mentioned the the videos, but you do so much more than that. Yeah, we, we have this really, uh, really cool charity. We got charity status uh, a couple of years ago. Um, my my daughter and I essentially run the charity. Um, the charity has uh, has one mandate, which is to show people that mental illness is a sickness, not a weakness. And any way you can find to do that, um, we do it. And, you know, th what we're doing now, this is part of my mandate, right, is to is to share this experience and to try to desensitize people to the words like depression, to words like Prozac or medication. And most of all, to words like suicide. If you don't say it, 
then people are afraid to say it. Like, how could you ever go to someone that you cared about and say, I have suicidal thoughts if no one's ever talked about suicide in your presence? So our goal is to is to uh, destigmatize, obviously. But, you know, more than anything is to normalize it so somebody can go to their spouse or to their teacher or administrator in your case or, you know, to their doctor or their brother or sister or their, you know, their rabbi and say, you know, I think I'm sick. I think I'm I feel like I, I have this thing called depression. And it's incredibly difficult for people to do that. But the more you talk about it, the easier it gets. So that's what Sick Not Week is about. And we try to find different ways to do that. And our message is, is really important and it's really effective because I can talk about it in a way that's not corporate. I don't have to answer to anyone. I have uh, a hashtag called fuck the walk. What is fuck the walk? Well, when you are really sick, we have all heard this suggestion. Why don't you go for a nice walk, Al? Right. Well, those are the suggestions that come from people who who don't understand what depression is. They don't understand the idea that you could go for a walk and actually feel better does not show any understanding whatsoever of, of this really serious, sometimes fatal illness. So, you know, the walk represents all of the the uh, suggestions that people make to us that do not resonate with us, that we think, oh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So we say, fuck the walk. And people, you know, like when I say that in a speech, and I, I pick my points, like I, I don't say it, if I was giving a speech in, in your school, I would use that phrase. Oh, but when you. I'm speaking to adults, that, yeah, but when I'm speaking to adults, I do. And you know what? They all, you can, you can see the head nodding coming from them. And you can see like, I mean, people will clap and go, oh my gosh, yes, yes, fuck the walk, because we all feel the same things. And what we can be is a mouthpiece for that. We can, we can speak on behalf of those who will never talk about it. And we can speak about it in a way that will empower them to at the very least go and get the help that is out there, but they're afraid to get because they're afraid to ever say the words, I suffer from depression or, you know, I, I, I have anxiety or, or I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, but I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. That's incredibly difficult for some people to say. Right. So how long has Sick Not Week been in existence? We have, uh, we, we have been in existence, uh, I guess for, as a charity about a year and nine months. And we were a not-for-profit before then. And I, I started, I started public speaking using, the phrase sick, not weak, probably uh, uh, from 2009 on, I did an interview on off the record with a hockey player who'd suffered from depression. And uh, I had never spoken about it on TV before, not because I was ashamed or embarrassed, as you know, clearly I'm not, but because I thought no one would care. I thought people would just think I'm complaining. So I never spoke about it. But then there was this hockey player on who had, who had experienced depression I had read in the 1990s. And I thought, oh, well, this will make a good question for him. That was that was just my only goal was to ask a guy an interesting question. And um, I asked him in advance. His name was Stefan Riche. I said, hey, Stefan, I, I know you suffered from depression in the 1990s. Would it be OK if I asked you how you're doing? And he looked at me just like I could see the sadness in his eyes. And he said, well, you know, it's painful for me to talk about. And I said, well, then I don't want to ask you about it. Right. I, that's why I wanted to clear it with you. But if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. And he said, you? So I explained to him, me and the year or year and a half that I'd just come off of and my experience over the previous decade. And he said, let's do it. We went on the air. We talked for maybe 90 seconds. That's it. And that changed the entire direction of my life because the next day I started getting emails, almost all of them from men and 
all of them saying the same thing. If, if I could sum it up in like, like one, in a couple of sentences, all of them said, hey, Michael, I watched you and Stefan Riche talking about your depression on television. It was the first time in my life I've seen a man, two men, speaking about mental illness without shame and embarrassment and without seeming weak. And because I heard you guys doing that, I'm telling you something I have never told another human being. I've never said this to anyone, but like you, I suffer from depression. But unlike you, I am ashamed and I am embarrassed. But because I heard you and Stefan talking about it, I can share with you. And this, this like a light went on in my head. It was like, wow, really? Like I remember that day because I re remember that I was out for dinner at a restaurant in downtown Toronto with, uh, with my wife and my daughter and my son and my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And I was answering texts while we were at the dinner table and, you know, which is, you know, kind of frowned upon uh, <laughs> right. by, by, by most wives in, in, uh, in, in North America. And uh, I, I, I remember saying, well, you know, take a look at this message. And I, I showed it to my wife and she said, like, go back to what you were doing. I mean, these these messages were were just by far the deepest thing I'd ever read that was addressed to me. And, you know, I'm a guy that had been a broadcaster all my life. And like I told you, there were tons of people who thought I was a jerk. So I got emails every day saying, hey, Landsberg, you're a jerk. And <laughs> I never cared, but I typically didn't respond to those because, you know, what are you going to say? Hey, right. thanks, for, uh, thanks for saying that. But um, these were all like ridiculously, profoundly deep and uh, important in my life. And that changed the direction of my life. That is so cool. So would you describe that as like being on a whim? Did you just decide, hey, I'll share mine yes. if you share yours? Or had you been yes. debating and thinking about sharing your story? Well, I said to him, hey, I'll whip it out if you whip it out. And he said, I'm not up for that. And I said, OK, well, if not that, why don't we talk about our mental illnesses? And that he was up for. Now, are you smiling? You, you do realize that I was not going to whip it out on television. <laughs> I, I certainly I hope to make not. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it was just, it was purely on a whim. Like I can remember being at my desk and I remember reading this article and the last paragraph, it said something, you know, Stefan Riche had a rough time in the 1990s, even winning two Stanley cups. He never really celebrated anything because he was uh, depressed. And this was like just before I got up from my desk to go to the studio or go to the green room and greet him. Right. And I just thought, yeah, it's a good question to ask him. And, I, you know, it's not like I planned on on making a difference in people's lives. Right. Uh, but apparently I did. And what I also learned was it's incredibly easy for me to do this. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can hear me now. I'm speaking with with joy in my voice. I, right. I clearly like talking about it. It's clearly very easy for me to talk about. It gives me a usefulness in my life that I never felt when I was talking about sports. So it, it was, you know, like it was this epiphany for me and it just happened by chance. That's incredible. Do you remember ending that interview and like taking your headset off? If you had one, I'm just envisioning that you had one on. And at that moment after the end of that interview, how were you feeling then? Was there any kind of regret or doubt or question that you had of yourself? No, I mean, I, I didn't give it a second thought. It was just right. like, hey, you know, like, hey, that was, that was cool, that little segment, you know, because it's all about giving value to the viewer, right? right? So it's like, okay, well, you know, and value can can be represented in a, a handful of different ways, right? You can entertain them, that's value. You can, um, you can teach them something, that's value. Um, you can create emotions in them, that's value. And, you know, in this case, uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know how you would describe it, but there was value in hearing 
two people talk about something that you don't normally hear people talk about. But mm-hmm. I, I didn't give it another thought until the next morning when somebody who, who went through the email said, hey, Michael, take a look at this. That's so cool. And then how long from that point until you ever spoke again publicly about depression, how much time was there in between? You know, I, I don't really remember. Um, I, I, rem- I remember, though, thinking about it. You know, this, this, you know I should talk about this. And uh, I think the first speech I gave was actually in Winnipeg to the Canadian Pharmacy Association, if that's what the association is called. To a, so a group of pharmacists, they brought me in to, to, to speak at their annual meeting. And uh, I, I remember that being like the first time I'd actually, you know, got out in front of people to try to use my own life experiences to make a difference, to give them value. And, you know, I kind of it kind of it's this may sound like an unusual thing to say, but that stage in Winnipeg or, you know, I have a speech tomorrow, the stage that I'll be on tomorrow, all roads of my life lead me to that stage. And by that, I mean, okay, well, what am I? I'm a professional talker. That's, that's all I've ever really learned how to do. <laughs> I have platforms available to me because of my career, because I have some notoriety, right? I, I have had this miserable, terrible illness, so I can speak about it with authority in a way that you never could if you hadn't experienced it. And the fourth thing that I have is I have this, this willingness because of my makeup to share everything that I've got without hesitation, without feeling like, oh my gosh, what are people going to think of me? So it's like all roads of my life lead me to being in that position. Wow, that's fantastic. So Sick Not Weak as a platform, is it targeted specifically for depression and anxiety or is it, it seems to me to, to be applicable for anybody with any kind of mental illness? You know, I, I like, in particular, I, w- I would say it's targeted at mental illness. But when, when I when I go to speak, I'm often uh, I'll often say in advance when I when I get up on stage, one of the things I'll say early on is, look, I'm only going to talk about what I know and I'm not going to cross into an area. I don't want to make a mistake ever and say something that's going to affect someone in a negative way. I don't want to come across as an authority on anything except that I am. A professional patient. I understand what this illness feels like. I understand depression and anxiety, so I can talk about them. I have an idea about bipolar, but when you know when it comes to other illnesses like schizophrenia, I I, I typically I mean I, I gave a speech the last two years to different schizophrenia societies across Canada, but I didn't speak about schizophrenia. I spoke about the stigma of mental illness. So I try to speak only about what I know because it's serious business, right, Al? I mean, like, like yeah, here I am. I could be in front of this, you know, this audience and I could be, you know, giving opinions about stuff where someone could go, are you sure that you're qualified to do that? But I'm sure as hell qualified to talk about depression and anxiety. Right. Absolutely. And folks can find your website by going to sicknotweek.com, right? Yes. And yes. I know you're sicknotweek.com. On- sicknotweek.com and you're on I'm guessing just about every other social media platform yeah it, either with the name sicknotweek or on uh, on Twitter we're at uh, at sicknotweek but also my account is at hey Landsberg H-E-Y Landsberg and that's what I tweet from and then um, Casey and and, uh, and Kim uh, Casey's my daughter's name and Kim is somebody that works on social media with us and she's got a couple of people that work with her they you know they will retweet stuff and respond to people on uh, at sick not week uh, and yeah you know it's uh, we are what we are 
And that can be an explanation for everything. He is who he is. <laughs> right. Or are you a football fan? Uh, I'm a bit of a football fan. Okay. Well, I mean, there was, oh, you, you remember he coached the Minnesota Vikings, Dennis Green. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Dennis Green went on to Arizona and on Monday Night Football, they lost a game that they should have won. And what he said was, they are exactly what we thought they were. <laughs> and I guess I'm saying to you, well, that just worked out perfectly. The fact that he coached the Vikings. That's funny. Uh, the fact that, you know, what I'm saying is we are what we are, which is we're no more, we're no less. You can you can check us out and you can gain strength from reading the things that we write and hearing the things that we say. If you are a caregiver and if you were talking about this like a business the biggest market by a mile is not people that suffer from a mental illness. It's people who care for those who suffer from a mental illness and they have no idea how to do it. Right. That's why we say, fuck the walk. Right. By the way, are you going to edit that out or is that going to stay? I think it'll probably stay. <laughs> Good. Um, but that, that's why we say that because as, as someone who cares about somebody with a mental health challenge, you have no idea how to help them because you can never understand the basic the basic concept of depression, which is the loss of the ability to experience joy. So you think that Michael or Al, they're sad, they're depressed. So I'll do something nice for Michael or Al because I love them and because I want them to feel better. They're sad, so I'll try to make them happy. And that is, as I'm sure you experienced, not the right way to go about this. So we try to, uh, in that regard, educate caregivers as to how, uh, first of all, they can better be caregivers, but also, you know, the most important point that you can teach them is that they'll never understand depression unless they experience it. And just acknowledging that to yeah. somebody that you care about to say, you know what, I don't get it. You know, I can't understand it. I thought I did, but I can't. That in itself is a huge step. Yeah, I would agree. And so if you say fuck the walk, ooh, I just said it. Um, yeah, you, you did, but you lowered your voice. I noticed that. You I went, did it. I did a slight yeah. bit. Uh, my my you young kids are actually upstairs. So uh, so if uh, if you say that, and I know you did just acknowledge knowing, admitting and saying, I don't even know what you're experiencing, you know, is better. What and if it's not a walk, what would you suggest somebody to do who has a friend out there who's struggling with depression? How should they support that person? Uh, first thing they do is they say, I, I can't understand it. I, I thought I could. I thought I had experienced depression in my life because we've all had bad times. So we use the phrase depressed, right? And, and people like, I call it healthy brainitis, which is like this illness of the healthy brain, which is a pretty bizarre statement if you, if you kind of break it down. But what it is, is the inability for the healthy brain to understand what the sick brain is experiencing. But the healthy brain thinks that it can understand because somehow we all think if we haven't been through it, we think we have. We think that we have actually gone through depression, but we think that we've been strong enough to go on with our lives, that we got out of bed, that we went on with our lives, that we didn't call in sick. So it's like, okay, Landsberg, I heard him speaking about it. He had to go to a doctor and he had to go on medication. And it's like, you know, his whole life fall, fell apart. Uh, I've been through the same things as him. My life didn't fall apart. I'm strong and he's weak. That's what the healthy brain most often thinks. And I was the same way. Before I experienced depression for the first time, when I heard about people having nervous breakdowns, I thought, like, what a joke. You know, hey, we all have problems, but, you know, I never sort of, you know, curled up in a ball and stayed in bed. And then you experience and you go, oh, my God, this is nothing 
like I thought it was. That's exactly is, yeah why one of my blog posts is um, major depression, a very humbling experience. I mean, I had those impressions as well. And my visions, my the image I would have it come to my mind if I thought of mental illness, I would think of somebody begging on the streets, really. So it was a very humbling experience for me um, yeah. and has been humbling. And, right. And that's what, you know, one of the things you can do, though, is you can teach people who care about the Al Levins of the world that it's not what they think it is. Right. And immediately your relationship with that person that is suffering goes up a notch if you acknowledge to them the fact that you can't understand it and that maybe for a year or two years you've been acting like you can and making these suggestions. So that's the first thing is to acknowledge the fact that you can't understand it. And and then there's a handful of other things that, that I think there's no easy way to say, okay, well, this is how you should be a caregiver to somebody with a mental health challenge like depression. It's incredibly difficult. Right. Yeah. And, you know, intuitively, there's nothing that comes to mind that we should do, right? Like if, if I use the analogy sometimes of knee surgery, like I had knee surgery once, my wife came to the hospital with me. I, you know, when I woke up from the anesthetic, she came, she brought my sweatpants, she handed me these crutches, she, she went and got the car, um, she opened the door for me, she helped me in the car, then when we got home, she, you know, she did all the same things, I lied on the couch, she brought me, uh, you know, uh, a glass of water, and if I was taking painkillers, whatever, she gave me the remote control, because we all know that life is better when you have the remote control, and and like, so all of that, I didn't have to tell her that it all came to her instinctively. But when it comes to something like depression, we have no instinct for what to do. We have no idea what to do with that person. So there's not an easy way to say, okay, well, you know, here's the, here's the caregiver's handbook, uh, you know, guide to being a caregiver. Uh, but there are some things that you can do. And one of the other things is to try to reduce guilt. Because guys like you and I feel so much guilt because our illness is affecting everybody else's life around us. Right. I cannot be the first person who has asked you, what do you tell somebody who's asking about how to help a friend with depression? I, I, I think, no, I, I, there's a couple <laughs> of questions that I get asked every time I go to speak, and that would be one of them. Yeah. Another one would be, how do, how do I know if I'm sick, right? Because we use the yeah. word depression to describe you know, bad time in my life as opposed to the illness. But, but and, so here, sorry to interrupt. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on the fuck the walk thing because, yeah. and this is, this is tough because you feel, I know you're pretty adamant about it and I don't want you to hang up on this interview and get all angry at me now. But, hey, dude, but, dude, but, dude, <laughs> I just told you that nothing anyone's ever said to me has offended. Okay, me. good, so good point. Good point. Good point. So one of the things that I tweet out, uh, fairly often is if you don't know how to help somebody ask them if there's something yes. that is low stress that you could do for them like do you want to just go for a walk do you want to go grab a coffee we don't even have to talk if you don't want to but in my mind a walk is minimal exercise but it gets a little exercise it gets them out into fresh air it gives them some social interaction even though if you are an understanding friend you aren't forcing them to talk um, but so that's where I push back a little bit on um, the walk suggestion, even as I, somebody I, who has struggled with depression. Right. Okay. Well, there's there's no pushback because I, I agree with you. It's the context that you put it in. Okay. If if I said if if I said uh, hey gotcha. Al, you know I'm going to be in Minnesota. I'd love to see you. And you said, well, you know I'm not feeling well. And if I said, hey, you know what Al, we go out for dinner. 
I bet you'll feel better. That is the opposite. That's, you know, like that's, you know, how, how could you say that to me knowing what this illness is like? Right. Going out for dinner is going to make me better any more than if I had pneumonia. Going out for dinner is not going to take the place of an antibiotic. Right. But if I said to you, hey, exactly as you put it, hey, I know that it's not going to make you better. But you know what? Maybe it'll distract you for a couple of hours. Yep. I'll do all the talking, all the things that you just said. That's great. It's yeah. the assumption that you think that you can make a difference that is so frustrating. Yeah. You know, when you say to someone, you know, like, so it's it's all the context that you throw it out on. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, I hear you saying essentially those people who are like, oh, you know, just go for a walk. You'll feel better. Go to a movie yeah. and that'll make you laugh. You'll feel better, yeah. which is very different than... Hey, you know what? If if you're cool with it, let's go see a flick. We don't have to talk at all. You know, if you want to yep. get out of the house, I'm happy to be there for you, and we can go to a movie. You know, something low key. Yeah, to- totally. So so we are on on the same wavelength. But if you oh, you know it makes if you me talk feel so me, much better. Yeah, I'm sure you were worried. <laughs> Woo! But also, you know, if I said to you, "Hey, Al, like I I know that you're." Uh, um, that you're struggling with your depression. Why don't you actually sit down and think about all the great things you have in your life? Like that, that, that is like the worst thing that you can oh, say to yeah. someone who has real depression, right. someone who's depressed because they're down about their life, but is not depressed the illness. That's fine advice for them. Right. Yep, but, but you, you know, when you were at your sickest, you know, like if someone forced you to make a list of the things that were good in your life, first of all, nothing looked good in your life, but, but you might know the, the healthy part of your brain, which is the ability to rationalize things yeah. would say, well, you know, my kids are a good thing in my life. My wife is a good thing in my life, but you couldn't feel any of those things. And there was no impact to acknowledging them. So that's why we, why we make reference to the walk in that way. It's, it's all about the context that you throw it out there. And if you think that you have the answer for this person who has this illness you've never experienced, try going to your local hospital to where people are having chemotherapy and try acting like you know what they're going through if you haven't been through it. They'll laugh at you. They'll say, well, you know, like how dare you come in here and tell us that you know what we're going through? You don't know. But the thing with depression is people think they do know because they think that they have had elements of it over the course of their life. Yeah, absolutely. The whole misconception, like you said, equating sadness to depression. Um, so sick. Not let, me, re- let me give you an explanation for that, too. See, I, I mean, it's, it's not like all of this is coming to me for the first time. I mean, I talk about this and think about this all the time. And I say to people, sometimes the first thing I say is, you know, um, depression, sadness, two very different things. Absolutely. I say, you know, my mom died last December. That makes me sad, but it doesn't make me depressed. Right. It can it can make you incredibly sad, and it doesn't mean you have depression. No, and, and as a matter of fact, it's supposed to, right? Right. You know, life, it's if anybody emotion. thinks they're going to go through life with without experiencing profound sadness, then it probably means they're going to die the next day because that's the only way you could avoid it, right? right, is, right. You know, if you, otherwise, you know, especially if you're blessed to to have people over the course of your life that you that you that you love and that you care about, yep. you know, like kids are supposed to outlive their parents, so your parents are going to die, and that should make you sad, Absolutely. but it shouldn't make you depressed. Right. So again, it's sicknotweak.com. I think everybody should check it out if you haven't yet. And Michael, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, so we did talk a bit about what a friend or a loved one could do to support somebody, but what would you say right now to a listener who is struggling right now? What kind of piece of advice would you give them? 
Well, I, I guess my first question would be, you know, do you talk about this? Do you share? Do you do you walk around with this feeling of shame? And that's what I think I'm best at is is trying to have people address the shame that they're feeling. And I can I can get them to address it and feel less shame by talking about my illness without shame. And, you know, then it's it's a matter of are you willing to commit to doing anything you can to get better? Uh, and if the answer is no, then maybe you're not as sick as you think you are, or maybe, just maybe, you um, have this bias that has been built up for some reason. There's a stigma around medication, for instance. And I say, you know, like, hey, you, you got to assume the fight. And the other thing is that, that, you know, one of the things depression does is it sucks the energy out of you. And sometimes people need to be dragged uh, or pushed to go for help. Because it's like depression puts its foot on your head and says, okay, Al, try to get up and go fight now. Try to get up and go, you know, to your doctor. It's like when you need the most strength in your life, you have the least strength. And you can be somebody else's strength. You can't, you can't do it all for them. But you can help them. And that's what I see my role and your role, I think, as, as being in a lot of cases. Absolutely. Great advice. Well, Michael, I want to thank you. First of all, thank you for Sick Not Weak and for all of the work and advocacy you do around mental illness. And I really want to thank you for taking time to be on The Depression Files. Thanks for having me, Al. And uh, as, as you could tell, uh, I, uh, I'm pretty enthusiastic about it. And uh, hey, you know, I'm the more experienced interviewer between the two of us, so I can <laughs> say this without sounding... Um, arrogant in any way, but really good job, good questions, good listening to my answers and good follow up there. So uh, um, you're good at this. And I think you have a really important role to play as somebody who can ask the questions based on their own experience. All right. Well, I don't know uh, if I can even share how much that means to me uh, hearing from a, uh, a true professional. So thank you so much for that feedback. Anytime now. And make sure you stay healthy. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.